Hello and welcome to Podularity, the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. My name is George Miller, and I'm pleased to say that after a gap of a few months, Podularity is resolutely back, and my hard drive is full of great interviews for the months ahead. We begin this autumn season of interviews on the US-Mexican border, a territory 2,000 miles long and 50 miles wide, for which journalist Ed Volumey has coined the name Amexica. Ed, a multi-award-winning writer for The Guardian and The Observer, has been visiting this borderland for the past 30 years, and reporting on it for the last decade. It's the busiest border in the world, a million people cross it every day, and in addition to legal trade, it's also the site of smuggling on a vast scale. Drugs, arms, money, people. The Mexican side is also the site of countless maquiladoras, assembly and manufacturing plants where goods for the affluent north are produced for sweatshop wages. And northern Mexico is also where we'll find Ciudad Juarez, one of the most violent cities in the world, where the never-ending battle for control of the drugs trade has taken an exceptionally bloody turn. I began by asking Ed about his own first encounter with this borderland. Well, I first went to the, the place I'm calling in Mexico a very long time ago. In 1981, uh, it would have been on one of those trans-American road trips that people of my vintage did in those days, perhaps they still do. Well, part road, part train, actually. But uh, got to El Paso, because you had to go to El Paso, and... Um, I think subliminally I knew that Ciudad Juarez was over the, over the, over the river. All I knew about Ciudad Juarez is that it, it, it had appeared in a, in a Bob Dylan song, and that was enough, along with the sort of, um, I hate the word exotic, along with the, the, the dare say of crossing the river, and uh, it, 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 as one does, it takes, it takes 20 minutes now, it took about five then, into a place that was as salacious and audacious as someone of my age then could hope a place to be for all sorts of reasons that we'll leave to our good listeners' imaginations. And did, did you feel back then the place was, was going to get under your skin? Was there something about it even then, or did that take longer to grow? And originally, I was one of those people for whom Mexico is an instant hit. You, I think people are either compelled or repelled. I was both at the same time, and it's a toxic mixture. Repelled by the poverty, uh, compelled and repelled by the sort of nascent violence, which was around even then, if you, you know, went off the beaten track, which I did. And uh, the, the adrenaline, the buzz, the excitement, it attracted me uh, then as um, someone in their mid to late 20s with, with, uh, with, with hair longer than one goes around wearing now, and um, as, as an area, I mean, Juarez and the, and the entire border similarly got me like a fish hook that, uh, of the kind that the harder you pull, the deeper it sinks, um, when I started reporting from there, and that was more recently, that was back in 2001, several visits later, uh, when I was sent to Nuevo Laredo and Laredo to do a story which is nothing to do with drugs or, or, or the abduction and murder of women or any of these things, it was about trucks. There was a strange... A window, well now a strange with hindsight window, when um, President George W. Bush wanted to um, stop the shuttle system that operates in this, the world's busiest uh, border crossing commercially, and allow the Mexican truckers uh, into and all across the United States. I think uh, a lot of the U.S. unions, the truck drivers, uh, many other people uh, thought he'd lost uh, control of his senses, and, and I'm not sure that he had, actually. The Mexican truckers couldn't believe their luck, and if you go back to Nuevo Laredo now, which is a terrifying place where the current war started, there is little else, frankly, that the truckers want to talk about, which is that great moment when um, their dream nearly came true that was very quickly scrapped. And I guess 
it's got a big step from going to covering individual stories to actually trying to see the big picture, which writing a book like this demanded. How did, how did you go from, from one to the other? Well, yes, it's, it's an enormous step to take, uh, both in terms of... Um, I mean, the books cannot just be a series of newspaper articles, as, as every sort of editor that one talked to was <laughs> pains to point out when wondering whether one was up to this. Yes, you have to... Well, you have to do two things at once, dichotomously, actually. You have to sort of step back a bit and, and try and work out, you know, what, what's on the horizon? What does the landscape look like? Uh, what are the many things you can see in this landscape that do or do make sense when you behold them all at the same time? When you stir the minestrone that has in it the story I've talked about, trade, and the fact that that is not irrelevant, because 3% of, the, of what goes through in that, uh, that port of entry at River Ladeo is contraband, or they estimate that it is, they being the, the River Ladeo mayor. The story that I've covered in the meanwhile, this appalling, what known as the feminicidio, the, the, the mass abduction, mutilation, violation and murder of young women, the factories in which many of these women worked, the whole grotesque, phenomenon of the Mejiladoras, the sweatshop assembly plants, which are a necklace of factories along the border that the United States is able to use as though they were in the third world in terms of wages, but are, are, are ten minutes away on foot, rail or, or, or road to bring into the US. That's a very major thing. All these other things. And, and then along comes the narco war. Where does all this fit or not fit into the what was perceived to be a battle between cartels for the smuggling routes, but which I realised upon the closer investigation that a book requires, was anything but just that. So you're stepping back to try and work out how all these things fit together, how this tapestry makes any sense at all, whether there is a pattern in the carpet. And then at the same time, you've got to step a lot further forward in. You've got to dive in because you're going to be writing 300 and whatever it is pages and not a, not a, you know, a page in the Observer. So it's, you know, three steps back and then another four steps forward, really. So that instead of just going to the, the rehab centre, interviewing the people with your translator and coming away after a couple of very moving hours and insightful, hopefully, hours for the paper, you've got to stay the night there. You've got to get to know these people. You've got to go back and back and back again so that you understand who they are, who's staying in the rehab centre, why they're there, what they've been doing, and bring them to life. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the rehab centre because that was a point in the book and I really felt for your safety because you're staying in this rehab centre shortly after a couple of massacres have taken place in very similar places in the same city for no discernible reason. So that must, that must have taken quite some courage to, to make it through that particular night. Well, just courage or just sort of insanity. Uh, I mean, in a way, I mean, I've done dafter things. I mean, I was a war reporter in many places, and, uh, you know, the reason one... The reason one, <coughs> one goes to Sarajevo is because it's being shelled, and that can be either <laughs> brave or you can call it nuts. You know, you can guess which my, which my parents and my children think it is. But um, yes, that was, it was me. I had, I had to do that. When I started working on the phenomenon of Ciudad Juarez, which is not actually the story of the whole border, it's a place unto itself. It's the most dangerous city in the world. It's now the murder capital of the world, along with, I think, Caracas and Venezuela and somewhere in Honduras, and, you know, they beat Baghdad and Kandahar. There were all sorts of themes in Juarez which, which did not fit the map 
that are in that, that features in, in, in some of the some of the media coverage that that is, that is supposedly explained by a battle between cartels. Juarez is a maelstrom. I mean, it's a place where if you bring hundreds of thousands of people to work in these sweatshop factories, and you then decide actually we can do it cheaper in Asia, and you remove that labour force, the people don't go away with you to Asia, they stay there. And you create what I've called in the book the human junkyard, you create trash. And people in that uh, ignominious circumstance you know, of, the, of the, if you like, the dustbin of, of global capitalism you know, will eke out a living. And if that living involves drug addiction as an economic activity, because that's what it is, killing as an economic activity, because that's what it's become, that's what they'll do. And this is directly related to, to the nuclear virus. So to get back to the rehab centres, everywhere that there is, I mean, this is why one, one covers war, or I don't cover war because I get high on shooting and killing and death. I don't hate war, that's why I cover it. And the great thing about these enterprises, or this reason why you come away feeling weirdly better about the human race than before you went, is because, you know, wherever there is evil, there is someone trying to fight back. It, however pitifully, however pointlessly, they do. And some of the, mostly, almost all these religious people are setting up these rehab centres for the few people who've decided to make a decision, be it through religious conversion or, or having a child or whatever, to get off this poison and to, and to come and, and live together in these, I mean, say rehab centres, you know, don't think clinic somewhere on, you know, on the East Lanks Road. No, the, the, these are hollowed-out buildings there on the, on the chewed-up outskirts of town, but they try their best, and they have prayer groups, and they come off, they come off drugs on cold turkey. Juarez, I should say, is awash with drugs, uh, you know, where the river flows through to the United States, the people will drink, and they do. I don't have any figures that are reliable, but it's, I mean, it's a frightening proportion of certainly young people and many, and many older people. That, you know, their brains are fried on the nastiest drugs around. And one of the mysteries is that every now and then, people, squads of gunmen, whoever they are, and nobody knows who they are for sure. They could be the army, they could be the police, they could be cartels, they could be hit squads. No one knows who they are. Go in and massacre these young people. They wipe them out as death squads. They go in and they kill, and they line up against the wall, they'll kill 11 in one go. They'll go into uh, another one that I went into 13 hours after the massacre happened, with the blood still sticky and, and, and boot prints all over the place, stamping their blood into the dust. They killed, I think, 10 or 11 that time. No one knows why. Some people call it social cleansing. Some people accuse the army of doing it getting rid of the undesirables, the criminals, the, the trash of society, if you like. Some people think that it's the cartels doing it to some of their own people, who, if they clean up, become dangerous, because they know too much. Some people think it's the cartels getting at the other side. I think it's all of those things, probably. Uh, I doubt it's none of them, but it could just be, and this is what I think Juarez tells us, it could just be part of this complete implosion, which is, which, which is hard for us to understand, but if we look at deindustrialized parts of this country, South Wales, the hinterland of Merseyside or Townside, we get a clue of what it is that's going on there. Amplify that by a hundred and you've got or more and you've got horrors. Which in a way brings me to the didactic point of this book. It's, it's ripple tarage. Don't worry, you haven't got to read a sociology lecture. You know, you know, this is intended to be something of a, of a 
as a you know, rollicking journey, the length of the border, and it's intended to, you know, to keep you interested in who you meet along the way. And, you know, not all of that is depressing. There are plenty of other glitches <laughs> in the story than just a drug war. But if there is a didactic point, and it is a riptide, I mentioned it at the beginning, and then let it sort of just, you know, run under the, under the current, if you like, that is a riptide, is that where are we going? with the logic of modern society, which I call post-political, post-moral, post-ideological, where the only ideology left on view, it seems, is greed and the sort of belligerent hyper-materialism. Where does this all lead? That's the cautionary tale. That's why there is a connection between Ciudad Juarez and parts of South Wales or Merseyside or Townside. Because if you do continue to to treat people just as trash, as, 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 a, as a number on a balance sheet of, your, of, your, of what could or couldn't be done cheaper in Asia, it will come back at you. And that, in a way, I think is, is the most terrifying thing about what's happening in Mexico. Yes, it's terrifying for Mexico, but let, you know, let everybody else take note of what's happening there too, because there are common, there are common factors. It is an extreme version of what is happening elsewhere. You know, it's, it's often tedious for authors to... You know, quote from their own books, I'll quote from somebody else's, Charles Bowden's, who's written a book about Ciudad Juarez, and he says, Ciudad Juarez is not a breakdown of the social order, Ciudad Juarez is the new order. I quote that in my book. And it's a terrifying thing to say, but it's not all wrong. It's not just doom and gloom. There is something awful in this that's true. It's, it's very important, you know, you've already alluded to the, the metaphor of the river, that you're not writing just about Mexico and Mexico's problems. Mexico is in a very dynamic relationship with its rich northern neighbor. And there is a river, isn't there? And this is the, it's a river of, of guns, and it's a river of people, and it's a river of drugs, and it's a river of money, and they're flowing in, in different directions. But there's a, an intense cross-border traffic in all sorts of commodities. Absolutely. And that's, that's what makes this a special place. And that's why I really wanted to write the book. Because although the themes may be part, in part universal and part singular to the place, the place is singular. It is like nowhere else in the world. The border is a double. It's harsh and it's porous at the same time. On the one hand, the United States, for reasons that are understandable, whether you agree with them or not, are trying to turn this into a stockade of uh, sensors and whether it's a stockade of, of hardware and, and militarization or these ultraviolet super things that don't seem to work very well, they're trying to turn it into, a, into, into a, a wall, if you like, physically a wall along more than 700 miles of it. On the other hand, it's the busiest border in the world. A million people cross it every day to go shopping, visit their families, go to school. There's more, it's commercially by far the biggest border in the world, and not just trade between the United States and the Americas, but if things continue as they are, the bulk of the trade between China and the United States, which is coming into a Mexican port called Lazo de Cárdenas, and indeed China and Europe, because the new generation of ships that are post-Panamax, they can't get through the Panama Canal, so they dock in Mexico, and the stuff comes by rail into the United States and out through New Orleans and Galveston to, to us. It's quicker than coming through through Turkey or whatever. So, you know, in this, this whatever this, we're going to call this late capitalist, globalized world we live in, you know, this border is Russia. So, of course, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be busy. And that's what makes it so curious. And in the way, it's, it's all those doublenesses add up. You know, it's not just the porosity and harshness of the border. It's the light and the darkness. It's the menace and the libido, because it is a sensual place. It's the insidious cruelty 
gratuitous cruelty, decadent cruelty of the violence that's going on, and the astonishing beauty of the place. It, for me, it's more beautiful than anywhere, and that's partly because of its, its charisma, partly because of its associations and all the, the people of my age <laughs> have of that landscape. So, so it compels you know, all along the way. As you say, you know, the river runs east-west, east or north-west-south-east, but the other rivers run in all directions, and the Iron River, so-called, as, as, as it's now known, of guns flowing south, which was taboo until very, very recently. It's only since Barack Obama became president, the United States has actually A, admitted it, and B, got serious about trying to do something about it. I don't think they're going to manage. But the idea of the book is that we need people involved in all this. I mean, that's what I want to do. It, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not a sociology thesis. Uh, it, it isn't actually didactic, although I do have things I want to say. What it is, is, is it's, it's, it's a journey in which we just meet everybody. We meet the truckers who are driving 340, or their share of $340 billion a year worth of trade across this border. You know, we meet the guy. Um, he's a Native American from Oklahoma, a very interesting man who runs the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Office that's trying to stop the Iron River flowing down to the cartels. We meet the old guy. The Border Patrol wouldn't cooperate. They wouldn't, they wouldn't give me any access, which is, a, which is very sad. I wish they had, and I think they're going to wish they did when they see this, uh, if they do. But, uh, you know, you talk to the old guard boys who think that all these sensors and high-tech stuff are all nonsense, and what you want to do is ride around on horses like they did, having shootouts with them. With, with, with the bandits. You know, we meet priests who are facing down the narcos in Mexico, bold, brave, bold, wonderful people whose lifelong ambition was to go to the, the, the Munich Beer Fest, um, which he did, actually, this, this, this one particular guy who made it. So, so we, we meet all these people and their complications. We meet the, and we people who have nothing to do with this, people who play high school football or watch baseball or, um, or who focus entirely on, on the trade union movement or rather the lack of it in these sweatshop factories. And this is not about a war, this book, weirdly. It's about a place in time of war. That's why your question is pertinent. It's about this extraordinary phenomenon of a 2,000-mile territory, long territory unto itself, really, which is why I've given it this name, Mexico, uh, which belongs to both countries and neither at the same time. On a lot of, in, in, over a lot of things, you know, we meet a chap who was a dope smuggler himself. He used to hunt marijuana across the border in his backpack. He says, you know, he lives in Texas now and he doesn't touch the stuff, but you know, he says, well, you know, I have far more in common than the Mexican just over the other side of the border than I do with Washington, D.C., just as he has far more in common with me than he does with Mexico City. They are of a kind, these people, but between them is, is fence. Um, between them stands the National Guard. There's even an Indian tribe, a Native American Indian tribe, who feature in this book with the Tahona Odom, and the border comes right across their land. Several, most, most of them are in the United States, but two or three thousand of them are down on the Mexican side. So we can talk to them about how this affects uh, rituals and, and ceremonies they've been doing since, since time began, but they can't do anymore because uh, people don't have the papers. And they, maybe they're mighty fed up about that. And an opinion, Ed, that keeps being expressed to you is that in the olden days, to put it crudely, the criminals were gentlemen. They, they knew the codes, they, they observed certain rules of their own. And those rules have all been swept away. You encounter that again and again, the sense that there are no more rules anymore. There are no limits to violence at all. Where, where do you think that has come from? Because you see parallels between deregulation, if I can put it that way, and, of the criminal fraternity at the same time as deregulation in the uh, regular economy. Yes, this is a crucial point. Again, you know, um, people mustn't be put, a, put 
talking about economics and deregulation because this is, this is not a book about pure information economics. It, it just sort of filters through, but it's a fundamental point. I worked a lot on the mafia uh, in Italy, and we're more familiar with that, so some sort of analogies might help. I'm one of those people who can't stand that film, The Godfather. I, you know, I, I think this idea that the old dons were sort of men of honor and some of this rubbish. But there is something in it. There was, if you like, a sort of a period of the classic narco. Uh, let's call it the monopoly capitalist cartel, where everybody knew their place. Uh, the politicians knew their place. The, the, the dons knew their place. And the same was true in Mexico um, back in the 80s, when the big cartels uh, called the shots invariably over the politicians. Or at least they did deals with the politicians, a bit like Cosa Nostra in Sicily and their relationship with power in Italy. So let's call that the classic period. In terms of the economy, let's call that the period of classic corporate capitalist, as it were, responsibility, the rules. There, 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 is a, there is an order of things, and corporations have a hierarchy, and you sort of know where, what they are, and you know your place within it, and, uh, and the guy who was the shop steward of the trade union becomes the personnel manager for the company when he gets promoted. It's solid corporate, in British terms, and patrician conservative capitalism, if you like. And um, many people yearn for it on both the left and the right nowadays. Others don't, however. They're very happy with the fragmentation. What's the fragmentation? Let's remember, and I think it's, um, it's a point I make strongly in the book, that the narco cartel globally is not a pastiche of globalized capitalism. They're the pioneers of it. The first uh, Western organizations to, economically to penetrate the communist countries were not Coca-Cola or Microsoft. They were the Camorra of Naples who went in and bought up all the cash and cooks in Eastern Europe. They were dealing with China, trading drugs and textiles long before any British car companies sold up and went, went there. Same is true in Mexico. The narco is, by definition, the Pan-American multinational. The Colombian cartels originally and now the Mexicans. They, are, they were NAFTA long before NAFTA. Uh, the, the North American Free Trade Agreement. They were, they were doing free trade across the Americas by definition. As soon as America decided around the mid-60s that it had an insatiable appetite for cocaine and marijuana and heroin. What has happened to capitalism recently? Well, it's outsourced. It's decided to sort of disintegrate itself, to fragment itself. The market decides that it will be competitive right down to the bottom. A local authority will decide that it won't clean the streets. It'll put, put the cleaning out to tender, so everyone will have to compete to clean the streets. Outsourcing, it's called. It basically means to frag, you, know, you fragment everything. The, the, the classic sort of structure disseminates into, 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 into molecules and particles all at each other for, for the prerogative of contributing to, to, to the corporation. Well, the narco has done exactly the same thing. So that your Don, if you like, with his Homburg and his, his, his good suit and giving money to the church, which is how he would have kept power before, call that the welfare state, if you like, the narco welfare system, collapses. You have now, partly with uh, a crucial player in this book called uh, El Chapo Guzman, leader of the Sinaloa cartel, but now even more so and more uh, menacingly, a new generation in the Gulf cartel called the Zetas, who are paramilitary. Now, they don't have, they don't want to talk to a politician. They don't need to talk to the politicians. I mean, if they do, it's having killed so many people with such ferocity that it's quite clear where the power relationship is. Now, now they don't have a humbug. They have a buzz cut. They have tattoos. They're not educated. They never wanted to be. They're cops. They're auto mechanics. And their currency is violence, only violence. They may, I suppose, give money to, to, to a children's picnic or something every now and then, but it's a pastiche. They're doing it as a joke, with contempt. There's a man in Juarez in the book uh, 
funny man with black humor called uh, Armando Baez. And he talks about this and talks about um, how the cartels really, they're doing the same as anybody else. They're outsourcing. They're outsourcing to the gangs. Why would they want to get involved in street corner fighting for, for turf inquiries for the, for the almost a saturation addiction of the young people in that city to hard drugs? They don't want to get involved in it. There's no way they give it out to the gangs. We'll outsource it uh, so that the gangs fight each other with increasing and terrifying ferocity. And no one wants to control it. Nobody can control it. The police can't control it. They are. They're probably part of it. The army can't. So nobody can control it. They can't control it if they wanted to. And as another character in the book, Huyan Cabrera says, who would want to control it? Because you'd die trying, for sure, as would your family. Yes, it's a very important parallel. We can't divorce the narco-violence from the violence of the system that is now contemporary. Let's call it capitalism. You sound like a sort of some kind of leftist lunatic who just to use the word nowadays, but that's the system it is. That's what it calls itself. Why shouldn't we call it that? Um, you can't separate the two out. And what we have in the narco war in Mexico, well, we have it everywhere in the world, but Mexico is the sharp end of what's coming, if you like, is that just as the corporation has fragmented into a sort of outsourced series of molecules at each other for the contract, if you like, for the tender, so too have the market cartels. They have outsourced. The lean and mean guys have moved in on the old patrons. And the Byzantine system of patronage and corruption is gone now. You have to decapitate more and nastier than the other guy to prove your worth. They have outsourced to the street gangs who have to do the same thing, except nastier and leaner and meaner than the other guys who came before them. That's the only currency now, is violence, just as the only currency in the economic system is so-called cost-cutting. But look, look at it that way. One lot cut heads, the other lot cut costs. They're doing this structurally, they're doing the same thing. As you, as you just alluded to, the violence isn't just functional. It's not just about removing opposition or opponents or hushing people up. It's symbolic, isn't it? It's, it's very ostentatious violence. I think people on the outside of it, are especially shocked by just how demonstrative the violence is. So it's, it's, it's more than just intimidation, isn't it? It's, it's almost of their own sort of language. They, they're sort of encoded messages, aren't they, in the, the methods they use? Very much so. There's a character who comes in at the beginning of the book and to whom I give the epilogue. He's called Dr. Hiram Munoz. Extraordinary man. He has an interesting job fairly heinous one, he is the, he, 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 he's the, he's the guy who, who examines the bodies. He has them on the slab. He's the forensic pathologist for the prosecutor's department in Tijuana, in Baja, California. His job is, apart from the, you know, working out who, how, how someone was killed, is, is what kind of messages are in these mutilations. Now, I don't know whether he's right or wrong, but I give him the last argument in the book, so I think it's very, it's a very interesting and compelling one. He looks at this exhibition of violence, as you, which you refer to, and he, he looks at this demon, the demonstrative nature of executions. We are talking about people who are hung by their ankles upside down, decapitated. We're talking about decapitation as a, as a show of strength. We're talking about the messages. Having your arms cut off might indicate that you were shaving the product or stealing from the cartel. Having your tongue cut out uh, means that you might have been talking too much. The violence knows no limits. It's almost innovative in its perversion. Uh, one man was chopped up, and his uh, uh, limbs were found in one place, his torso in another, his head then found, but missing its face. That was deposited near the city hall at a time called Mochis, tied to a soccer ball. There's no end to the depths 
of this in terms of the quality of the killing as well as the quantity. And in the old days, as Dr. Munoz says, the narco hid their victims. They didn't want to rock the boat or cause panic. Or, uh, and, and, but uh, this lot, no, no, no. They want you to see how savage they are. They want their own people to see how savage they are, so that they know what they will do to them if they step out of line. They want the opposition to see how savage it is, not just hanging from the bridges, but, and this is crucial, on YouTube, on the internet, on Twitter, on the mobile phone. This is high-tech war. This is post-political war. This is, this is the war of the digital era. And um, what Dr. Munoz says, and as I say, I give him the last word. I don't know if he's right or wrong. He thinks that this demonstrative violence, this, this exhibition of ferocity, is a sign of the end of things. Uh, his argument, not mine, but he, he, you know, he, he sees the world quite clearly and interestingly from these slabs. Trying to work out when I talked to him, uh, a, a beauty queen and a cheerleader had been decapitated and had her, her, her fingers cut off. And he was trying to work out, he said it hadn't been done very well. And they hadn't been cut off at the joints, which suggests they probably weren't intended to be sent to anybody. Made him think that, that this one could be a crime of passion. He didn't. He wasn't happy with the newspaper headlines that this was uh, what, a, a, an informer for the police against the uh, and a sort of gangster's mole cheating on her, her lover who was a narco boss. But he thinks that all this is the sign of the end, and he talks about the Inquisition as a sign of the end of the Middle Ages and the, and, and the era of blind faith as the Renaissance and science arrived. And he talks about economic crisis now, and closure and collapse and moral collapse. And in a way, going back to your point about the old Don, you know, the, the, the old Padron, Marco, he, he, he's, you know, I don't share this for sure, he's, he's deeply sentimental and nostalgic about the good old days of the gentleman Don. And he thinks this lot of ferocious, he makes comparison perhaps is, we mean no, um, nothing litigious here against anyone involved between Frank Sinatra and, 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 and the rappers. <laughs> I mean, that's not, we're not talking about Frank Sinatra or rappers, but I can see what he's getting at. He thinks that all this is, um, is a sign of the end, of the, a public execution as the herald of, of, of the end of things. Now, listeners may know that, that Juarez is a town famous for its violence, and perhaps in particular for the violence against women, the very high number of women who may have had no connection with the, the drug trade but have been simply picked off the streets and killed, mutilated, abused in the most appalling ways. So listeners may know about that, but they, they, but they may be baffled as to, as to where that comes from, even in an, an economy of violence, why women seem to be especially victims of the most grotesque violence. I think this is one of the things that has... Um that has continued to, to, to baffle people, A, for its misogynist ferocity. These, these are awful, awful murders. They've been going on for quite some time, and they're more celebrated in a perverse, I think, often a rather unpleasantly celebrated way than any other aspect of this war until recently. Between, let's say, 1997-8 and 2003, some 340 of these women were abducted violated, mutilated, murdered, horrible games are played. Their clothes are exchanged, for instance, so that their mothers identify the wrong ones, that kind of thing. You know, as a journalist, I have this, I have this sort of habit, which I acquired in Bosnia in the early 90s, of trying to see stories from the inside. I sort of spend quite a lot of time in, 
kind of inversion of meditation, if you like, by putting myself in the concentration camp or the rape camp and wondering what it... You know, I do, I, I'm afraid, wonder when I can't see what it's like, what it could be like to be a young girl walking home from your factory or your computer class one night and the next thing is that for two weeks you are in a room being cut up and raped and, and, and abused like this. And I talk to their mothers, obviously, who must spend their entire lives doing that. And, and I think we, we've sort of drawn a blank. We don't want to know why this is happening. I think it's associated with the escalation of a, of a violence which is particularly male. There is a misogyny, weirdly, this may sound weird, even in the violence that has now become man on man. It has a sort of, the, there's, a, there's a woman, journalist, writer, part academic, called Cecilia Bailly, who makes a very interesting point about the nature of violence, the quality of violence, almost as though it had been sort of, not pioneered, but as though, but as though the violence against these, these young girls and women generally had given us a, a, a sort of, prelude, a, a, a glimpse of what kind of violence was going to follow that is very male. The converse of that is that the resistance to the narcos, which is very thin on the ground, is invariably female or clerical, which gives us some idea, you know, in a way that, 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 ref, that that's an expression of the maleness of the violence. I say this, you know, as a bloke. Also, one must avoid the sort of cliche of Mexican machismo, it, it, it doesn't actually sort of work that, I find. I mean, most Mexican men you meet aren't particularly macho in the way that we, we, you know, we, we, the way that we characterise them as being sometimes. Um, but there is a male nature to this violence, and it's also to do with social performance. It's to do with kudos as a man and being somebody in the American ghetto parlance, if you like. It's to do, and this is, I think, one of the sick things which is connected to the violence against women, that social performance involves a sort of strutting of your possessions and the way that you, and, and what you own. It is, you, you know, it's, it's as banal as this, as a man called Mario Trevino in the book who talks about this very brave man. And, you know, it is as banal as having this T-shirt or this mobile phone application that gets you that cheaper, which this SUV, who likes to be in that SUV, but not that SUV, because that's last year's SUV. It is as banal as that. And that is, generally speaking, a male performance. It's a male kudos world. Add into that river of Viagra, the you know the, the slightly sort of testicle clinging jeans thing that happens. Add onto that the proximity of the United States, and it all feeds into this cauldron of different deportments, different social, different forms of social kudos, hyper materialist male, and a sort of as it were, a sexualization of violence rather than a, you know, a violence of sexuality, if you like. And the connections to the narco war are also you know, empirically illustrated. There was a very good investigation by a magazine called Processor in Mexico City that showed how as the narco violence spirals down or escalates, which is what you want to think about, so does violence against women everywhere not just Juarez, but that with the spread of the narco war across Mexico, so has a pandemic of domestic violence, of abuse of, um, of women in, in various ways. And this, again, just to get back, is not unconnected to what they call the feminization of labor in the Machinadores. At the outset, now the labor force in the Machinadores is about 50-50, actually, in terms of gender, as they have changed and what they do has changed.
female at first, and it's not altogether untrue that the, the is it called, the fodder for the famous CDO quarries did contain large numbers of girls working in these factories. As Julian Cardona says, you know, Juarez was for a long time a city of, of men who were sexually potent but economically impotent. In a lot of occasions you had, you know, Ugo staying at home with the kids while Gabriela went out to work and became a wage earner in the family. That remade, I mean, that's becoming fairly common in, in, in Europe and the United States. But in Mexico, that, people don't like, they think that's weird. It's considered weird, the wrong way around. Then the Nautica comes along and says to Ugo, well, you know, no job. You're sitting at home, and you know, what kind of man are you? Well, we've got a job for you. And we know what that is. And Ugo says, yeah. You speak to someone in the book at one point, and she says that her greatest worry is that children along the border are growing up with this as their world. And so my last question to you <coughs> is, do you think in 10, 15 years' time there will be more cities like Juarez, that it, it will become some kind of new grotesque reality along the border of America and Mexico? Well, I'm afraid to say I think there are going to be more cities like Juarez all over the world, unless something happens, unless there's a, there's, a, there's a very sort of major shift in what we think is important in life. And unless the, the, is it the I don't mean the, the visible rulers, I mean the, the less visible rulers in the corporate world and the financial world, give the young people some other kind of model. This was in Altar, in a town in Sonora, which is the hub of the migrant smuggling business in the western half of the borderland, a business which is being taken over by the narcos, as was demonstrated recently when, as some listeners may recall, 72 bodies were found dead, people killed for refusing to pay extortion money to the narcos who were smuggling them over in Tamaulipas on, on the east side. That would be the Zetas and the Gulf Cartel. Altar, where this lady, Mrs. Ortiz, is speaking, is in, is in Sonora. It's territory contested between the Sinaloa and the Delta and Leva cartels. And, and she, she is a brave woman who stayed on in Altar. Most of her friends had left. And yes, as you say, her worry was, I can see, you know, I want to think that the young people are going to reject this. I see the opposite. She campaigned to become the mayor on an anti-corruption, anti-narco platform. <laughs> surprise, surprise, she lost. And she said that the, the, foots, the main foot soldiers for the opposition were young people. She said they are adapting to this. They're quite happy with this. There are no opportunities. This is an opportunity. They are reduced to being, again, in ghetto parlance, nobody. And the narco says you can be somebody if you join in, if you get pushing, if you, which, by the way, automatically means consume as well, and then become one of the, one of the gangs, become a, a, a poyero, become a, a smuggler, and ultimately become a killer, because that's where the big money is. That's the real opportunity. That's, where, that, that, that's the best career ladder to be on, is, is a sicario, an, an executioner. And Mrs. Ortiz's point was, you know, I don't see much resistance among young people to this. And, of course, that's terrifying, and we... as you know, we can pontificate about how, how young people are appalling nowadays. They have no values. Well, why have they got no values? They're not really encouraged to have any values. They're not, I mean, I didn't see anything happening in Altar to convince uh, a 16-year-old that there are better things to do. There are priests in Altar, and there are people like Mrs. Ortiz in Altar, who insist that there are better things to do. And, of course, they're quite right. But through the 16-year-old's the, the end of the telescope, well, show me then. And unless we do 
and this is this is a soapbox I'm on now in this conversation. <laughs> I'm not on a soapbox in the book, I promise. You know, unless we do, and I say we, it's not me, I'm afraid, or you, it's we don't earn the kind of money of the people I'm talking about. You know, let's have another model, because if we don't come up with another model, yes, the answer is yes, there will be a lot more cities like Ciudad Juarez along the border, although there will be variations on the theme, of course, and in the world, and in Europe, and in the United States. Ed Foliamy. A Mexico is published in hardback by Bodley Head in the UK and Farah Strauss in the US. This podcast was sponsored by Blackwell Online, which you'll find at blackwell.co.uk. And you can find Podularity at podularity.com. And on iTunes by typing Podularity into the search box. That's all for this programme, but I hope you'll join me again soon for another Podularity podcast. And until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.